Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? Chance of departure today, 100%. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour. And that means we get another opportunity of a Friday to work with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board, our producer. Benny, how are you doing today, where, sir? Where is it? I can't, I can't see it. I can't see it. Where is it? Oh, does what that you, mean in early you, spring? Oh, you're looking, uh, <laughs> looking for his own shadow. <laughs> Boy, that had you fooled. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Groundhog Day, everybody. That's just about your favorite movie, Suzanne. It is one of my favorite movies, and we're hoping to catch it later. I have to find it because I, I, I remember owning it, Benny, on VHS. Oh, well, I mean, that's the best. <laughs> I used to work at Blockbuster Video back in the day, so I do remember that uh, cover box very vividly. Yeah, so I'm going to have to go searching for it on the the newfangled technology to uh, see if I can find that today. Oh, don't and do watch it. it! Don't. Do I got to watch Groundhog Day on Groundhog Day. All right. Yeah. That's well, I mean, all. it's a staple. Sure. It is. It is. It's a holiday. Of course it is. <laughs> and I'm not in Punxsutawney, PA. So we're gonna we're gonna have to make do here in Sarasota, Florida. You should put that on your bucket list. There you go. Uh, you know, a lot of people do. I you know. There are people from all over the country, all over the world, going to see this rodent. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> now you sound like Bill Murray's character. Right? <laughs> Today is a special day for us, Suzanne. We have In more than one way. We yeah. have house guests. We do. We do. We, we always talk about these wonderful people that we meet on air, but we never meet them in person. And our guest today is somebody who we have met in person. And we've also stayed with he and his lovely wife. And we, we said, please, please, please come to Florida. And they, they were thinking, well, do we really want to leave the, new, the cold of up north in New Jersey to come to Florida? And, and they relinquished. So we are lucky to have our guest with us today. Carl Petrie is a psychic and independent filmmaker. He is known for his accurate clairvoyance, ability to tune into the past via retrocognition, and ability to read objects and photographs via psychometry. He participates in paranormal investigations working with paranormal investigators to assess haunted locations and photographic evidence of paranormal phenomenon. There is a lot more to say about him right now. We'll just say he's from Newark, New Jersey, and we have had him on several times. I didn't look up how many, but I will. And we are thrilled to have with us Carl Petrie. Carl, thank you for being with us, both guest and on our show today. It's great being here in Florida. And uh, like always, it's great to be on this show. I love this show. And we owe a debt of gratitude. We're always delighted to get together with you, Carl, especially in person, but always on the show. You know, I've said it before, everyone in our neck of the metaphysical woods is six degrees of separation from the late, great Rosemary Ellen Guiley. And she is the lady who told us about you, who put us in touch 
with you. And it's been the start of, and the continuation of a great friendship. So we are in Rosemary's debt. Rosemary was a wonderful person and a very close friend. And uh, I miss her dearly, you know, since she's passed. We have several interesting topics. The two of you have been chatting away till all hours of the night about what we're going to talk about today. And and while I went to sleep, you guys figured out what today's show is going to be about. <laughs> so, Gary, you take the lead here. Talk, Ask Carl something. Carl, let me begin by asking you, for the benefit of our listeners, what projects are you working on? Because I can tell you folks, with Carl Petrie, the man is always working on something and probably more than one something at a time. But you have something of special significance to talk about in the first half hour of our show. And then uh, after our break, we'll talk about something else. It will be a lot of fun and involves a bit of nostalgia as well, I do believe. But what's going on with you currently, Carl? Well, right now, the project that I'm working on is actually my third book, and it's about time slips. Now, for people who don't know what a time slip is, it's uh, when somebody, uh, let's say any type of person is just out there and all of a sudden they find themselves at a different time. Let's say you're in front of your house or down the street or whatever, and all of a sudden it turns back. Let's say you're back in the 1880s or 1920s, and then you pop back. Well, that little thing is a time slip. It's a real phenomenon. It's not, oh, it doesn't exist or this or that. No, it's a real phenomenon. It does happen. It happened to me. And with my new book that I'm writing about it, I've interviewed people who it happened to them, legitimate people who say this has happened to them. So it's going to be a fabulous book and it's going to be different than any other books dealing with the time slips. Mine will be a little bit different. I asked you yesterday if you'd ever watched Quantum Leap because that was one of my favorite shows when Scott Bakula was on there. And I, I have to admit, I haven't seen the remake, but you said yes. And I said, are, are these time slips like Quantum Leap when he's going from different times, but he's also going into different bodies as well. And you said, yeah, it's something like that. It is. And uh, also back in the uh, years ago, they had a television show called The Time Tunnel, where these uh, two gentlemen were going through time. They Through this tunnel, which was part of the government program, they got trapped in a tunnel and they were going to different areas in like time slips. And unfortunately, that is totally not what time slips are all about. Are they related to place? I mean, do they happen more often in very specific places or can they happen anywhere? It could happen anywhere. Uh, but what I've discovered after my interviews and speaking with people, it's not like, like I mentioned a time tunnel where the first episode of the time tunnel, they were flown onto the deck of the Titanic. Well, no, it doesn't happen that way. If I happen to be, uh, let's say in my personal case, I was at a cemetery and a time slip happened and I found myself going back into 1830 and it happened. These time slips happen where you are at. You will not be transported somewhere else. So if you had a time slip in front of your house, it will be your house at a different time. Okay. I can imagine that 
pushing someone in the moment to the point where they wonder if they've gone psychotic. Well, it's, it's not even just psychotic. It's the, the thing is, it's a very, very scary phenomenon because here you are uh, all of a sudden thrown back into time and you are interacting with these people. Now, I'm going to really emphasize that. It's not like you're there, you're invisible, and you're observing people or things that are there. That wouldn't be that bad. The problem is that you got flung back into time, and not only are you there, you're interacting with the people of that time. In my case, uh, I was thrown back into 1830, and the reason why I know that about 1830 is I was in a cemetery, and I was thrown back, and I saw them having a funeral, a burial, and I walked over, and of course, the people there are seeing this strange, outfitted man walking behind them. The minister stopped talking so that he would allow me to walk behind the crowd. And all the people, the women that were there, the men that were there, they would every now and then, they would glance over to look at me because I was so strange looking compared to them. And I didn't know what year it was until... I had the guts to go back to that cemetery over a year later to the grave that I saw them doing a burial. And then I saw the tombstone and it gave the year of death of 1830. Now, one of the things that was odd about it, I'm listening to this minister talking about this person who died. And he said that the man was a soldier of the revolution. That's a very odd way of phrasing things because we, in the 20th and 21st century, refer to these people as a Revolutionary War soldier. That was not said back then. He said he was a soldier of the revolution. Now, when I went back to this cemetery a year later and I walked up to the grave, there was a placard that was next to the tombstone and it said, Revolutionary War soldier. So what the man said was confirmation of what I saw over 100 years later. So as you say, it could be very, very scary. And what really scared me was when I got there, I didn't know whether I'd be coming back. Yes. You know, yeah. here I am in, in this forgotten time looking at these people, looking at me. And now my wife, you know, if she gets the news that Carl disappeared, she will never, never put two and two together and say, oh, he fell into a time slip. Right. They say he was kidnapped. He was he decided to uh, leave life and, and you know, go ran away. Hiding or yeah. hiding or exactly yeah. how would, no one would ever say it was a time slip that somebody was there and they automatically disappeared. Hmm. However, you know. It took a while, probably five, six minutes later, I came back. The people I spoke to who had similar experiences said the same thing. Like less than 10 minutes later, they were back. But also leaves another question. How many people had a time slip who did not come back? They were stuck in that time. It's always possible that could happen. You know what just occurred to me as you were talking, Carl, your lovely wife, Susie, could 
in to her shock, not know what happened to you, could file a missing person report. And on the report, you're not, I don't think anyone's going to write, must have been a time slip. (laughs) Boy, that's so true. And, you know, my car was parked on the next block. As a matter of fact, I went there to meet a a mechanic who specialized in uh, auto electrical work, our problems. And at the time, I was driving a Sedan DeVille Cadillac. And it was a 1977. Now, if anybody knows about Cadillacs of 1977, the wiring on these cars is incredible. And to try to find a problem, an electrical problem, could take you all day. So I was lucky to find this man who said he'll work on it and he'll find the problem. So, But the problem happened is that he told me to be at his house at 6 o'clock. Well, I got there about a quarter to 6 and I waited there till like 6.20 and he didn't show up. I figured he was working late. I'll just hang around. That's when I decided to walk towards that cemetery. I was attracted to it. And the next thing I know is here I am in a time slip. So that's the background story of why I happened to be there. I just didn't drive off the road and say, I think I'm going to walk through the cemetery. No, I was killing time. I wanted to kill time Why this man... I was waiting for this man to come home so he could check out my caddy to find out why I was having this problem. I got a question for you, Carl. In your introduction, and it's something that we have talked about um, once or twice um, when you've been on before, is that you have a, a very interesting ability that Gary and I know no other person that has that. And that is the idea of retrocognition. You have walked into various places and describe what retrocognition is. Okay. Retrocognition is very, very rare. I can walk into a building, a house or whatever, and I can look at the architecture and I can tell you what it looked like when the house was built. So, uh, Because I can do that and do it very well, people who are restoring their homes will ask me to come to their home and look at the house and tell them the way it looked in, for example, 1912 or 1895. And I can walk through the house and I can tell them every single inch of that house would look like before. Uh, And it's a very odd ability to be able to do that. Yes, you went to Gettysburg one time and walked into a room, and didn't you tell them that there was something that was oh, yeah. out of place? This is the Jenny Wade House. The Jenny Wade House is located in Gettysburg. Uh, when the Battle of Gettysburg happened, all the uh, residents of Gettysburg left, except Jenny Wade. She had a house there, and the battle was going around there, and she had a small house. And they were... Uh, Uh, She became a casualty. A sharpshooter shot through the door and killed her in the kitchen. And so they removed her body and they put it down into the basement of that house. Now, if you go to Gettysburg, you could see the Jenny Wade house. And uh, they have tours of it and they show what the house looked like. And they have the story of Jenny Wade. Now, Rosemary Guiley, the person we uh, spoke about before, great author. She's known in Gettysburg because she is that well-known. 
And anything Rosemary Guiley wanted to do in Gettysburg, she was allowed to do because uh, she is Rosemary Ellen Guiley. So she went to the uh, park ranger because the park ranger handles these uh, places in Gettysburg. And she asked if we could go into the house before the tourists went in. And of course they gave her permission. So it was Rosemary Guiley and I followed her into this house. And she says, take a look around and tell me what you say. So I walked around the house, upstairs, downstairs, you know, around the rooms. And I said to her, well, it's all wrong. She goes, what, what do you mean? I said, the bed was not facing this way. Her bed was facing, I showed a different direction. And I said, these, uh, these chairs and everything you have here is in a wrong place. It was in the other room. And I started describing it. And so we went through the whole house and I told her the things that were different. And I said, oh, by the way, the wallpaper that they have here, that's wrong too. And I took a piece of paper and I drew what the design was on the wallpaper. So after I finished, the park ranger came in and she said, you know, she introduced me to the park ranger and she says he has this ability. He could go into a place and see what it looked like before. So she says, okay, this is what he said. And then she went through a whole list of things that I said was different in the house. Now here's this park ranger with the Smokey the Bear hat and he's wearing these mirror sunglasses on. So it with no expression on his face. And I don't know whether he likes me, he doesn't like me, or is he going to kill me? I have no idea. He's, he had that stoic type of face. So after she finished giving him the list, he picked up his head and he looked towards me and he said, everything he said is true. And she goes, it's true. He goes, yes, we had to change everything in his house to accommodate central air because now we have tourists and they don't want to be in a hot house. So after that happened, the this man, this um, this ranger, he said to me, he goes, how would you like to go with us later? Uh, and I'll take you someplace and maybe you could tell me what was there. I said, sure. So I says, you know, this is going to be me, my wife, Sue, and Rosemary Guiley. And we're going to go with this ranger to an area that no tourist goes. This is someplace totally off, off the beaten path. So it was late at night. We got into his truck. It was a big, like a big pickup truck. And we got in this truck and we started going to the back roads of Gettysburg. I, of course, I'm not from Gettysburg. I had no idea where we're going. So he turns off this little dirt road and he says, okay, Tell me what was here before. So I says, well, let me out of the truck. I says, I'm going to start walking. You follow me about 50 feet behind me. Because remember, it's totally dark. And the only lights were his headlights. <clears throat> so here I am walking in front of this truck late at night. And step by step, I'm walking in front of the truck. And I'm there like, gee, I'm getting stuff, but... I don't know if this is going to be worth anything, but it's always told, just tell them what you see or what you feel. Just do it. You know, don't, uh, don't try to filter it out. So after I walked through this whole thing, I turned around and here I walked up to the truck with the ranger driving 
and Sue and, and Rosemary there in the front seat. And I says, look, I, I don't know what was, I, I don't know what was going on here, but all I can tell you is I sense a tremendous amount of horses. All these horses are around here. I could hear them snorting and I, I could almost like smell them. So then he looked at me and he says, this was the staging area of the Union Calvary. Wow. And he wow. says, this is not for tours. You would not know this mm-hmm. because it is a, a, like a forgotten place. The rangers know where it's at, but no one else. Off limits to right. tourists. But I knew. <laughs> when you went in there and you knew that the bed was in the wrong place and the chairs were in the wrong place, you're seeing with a very particular vision. But if I understand you, that is not the same as a time slip. You, when you have the time slip, you're actually in in that old older time, whereas with retrocognition, you're viewing it like you might be viewing a movie or a TV show where you can see it. That's a great way of putting it. Okay. Because it's like I am a ghost in the past. Ah. I don't exist there. I am just a set of eyes or like a camera that's looking over someplace and taking note of what's different there. Now, a time slip, it's not that I'm a ghost-like figure looking at things from the past. No, no, no. Totally different. What happens is that I, as a human being, am transported back into a different time. I am physically there. That's the difference. Yes. Very good. And because you're the only one that we know who has the retrocognition ability, I wanted to bring it up and make that distinction between the time slips and the retrocognition, because in one place you can see things, but in another place you actually are there. And now the retrocognition, that wouldn't necessarily be anything very scary. No. But in the time slip... It's terrifying. Because you might not get back. Right. When I experienced this now, uh, during the research in my book, I have met other people, legitimate people who had time slips. We all have one thing in common. When this happened to us, we were terrified, not afraid, terrified, because we felt what would happen if we cannot go back. Here I am, which I later found out was 1830, I am looking at all these people, staring at these people and thinking, number one, they have no idea who I am. And if I can't approach these people and say, oh, by the way, I'm from the 21st century, that's not going to fly. They'll think you're totally out of your mind. And uh, this Christian area would feel like I was possessed by evil or a devil to come out and say that. And they would either arrest me or easily take me to an insane asylum because I'm crazy. Wow. (laughs) A situation that could, it's frightening, it's fraught. And uh, I don't think I would volunteer for the experience, though. I just wonder what it must be like. Let me move forward in our discussion here, Carl. There is a place in Liverpool. I believe you're going to see it one of these yes. days. Yep. And I believe it is known as Bold, B-O-L-D, Bold Street. What's been going on there? Well, Bold Street is the only place I know on earth 
where this happens to people quite often. And um, if you were to ever check out, Google it or Wikipedia, whatever, Bold Street, you will see the entries for it that uh, about time slips. It's a very, very common thing. Uh, for example, uh, there was policemen that were chasing uh, a man that robbed something from a store and he ran down Bold Street. And as he was running down Bold Street, he ducked into one of the stores. And as he did, it, the time went back into 1965. Now, these two uh, bobbies or policemen that were chasing him, they froze because they saw that the store wasn't the store that they went into. And they looked around and everybody was dressed like the mid-60s. The cars on the street were for the mid-60s. And they did not know what happened. Now, they were facing the robber. He was looking at the policeman. They were looking at him. And no one wanted to do anything because all three were terrified because they didn't know what happened. And that's just one example of the things that happens in Liverpool on, on that street, Bold Street. And that's why I'm going to Liverpool. I want to take pictures of it and I will get the opportunity to speak to people who have experienced it, including the police. Now, usually you would think the police would say, oh, no, that's not true, or this is the opposite. The policemen are free to say they've had their experiences on that particular street. You have got me thinking here, Carl. Let me set this up. Let's suppose that Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr wish to go back home to Liverpool. They want to see how the place looks today. And they go to Liverpool together and they walk into perhaps a department store. They walk into a store that appears to be a record store. And it's strange to these gentlemen because they're looking at Beatles, 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 and maybe this happens to them and they're, they're slipping back to 1965 where they've been world famous for a year. Beatlemania is reaching its crest. And everywhere you go where they will sell such merchandise, you have Beatles gear, Beatles swag, we might call it today, everywhere. I was around at the time. You could hardly go anywhere where you could make such a purchase that you didn't see various kinds of Beatles souvenirs. They would be seeing themselves as the world saw them in 1965 and they would be reliving it, but in a brand new way from the perspective of years. And I wonder if they would even be recognized standing there. They would be wearing, you know, 21st century clothes, but they could walk into the past and see the Beatles celebrated as they were in their hometown. Imagine having that kind of a time slip. Well, what's also bad about it is that the people that from that time, 1965, We'll look at Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr and say, isn't this a shame? You got these these very old men trying to look like Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. <laughs> it's like all the people who dress up like Elvis. Exactly. <laughs> and they would say, well, it's a damn shame. <laughs> Time slips, a phenomenon to be 
studied in depth, uh, if you are interested, and Carl Petri certainly is. And this book that you have coming out, we're going to do the marketing piece after the break coming up here momentarily, but how that factors into your writing and what you have coming out so that people can learn more through your creative efforts. We are talking with Carl Petri, dear friend of ours, great friend of the show, always a great guest. We're going to get into something else after the marketing piece that is a bit more nostalgic. It's a time slip in its own way, in its own right. And it involves the famous, some might even say infamous, Ed Wood. We are Manson Mitchell. We're sure glad you joined us today. Give us a couple of minutes. We will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Carl Petri, psychic medium and filmmaker, to talk about the famous people he's known and places he's been in New York and New Jersey. On Saturday, Matt Shea, along with Skip and Sharon Linegang, discuss haunted workplaces and the high strangeness found at some business locations. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Bored with the other stations, hammering away on the same old talking points? Try Alternative Talk 1150 and get some variety. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our visit with Carl Petri. I did look it up on the break. This is his ninth visit since 2017. We are thrilled to have him as a friend and also have him on air because he's just so darned interesting. We have your books on our bookshelf, which, as you saw, Carl, Absent Witness and Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. Tell people how they can, you know, get in touch with you, find your books, uh, anything that you want to share with our listeners. Well, the books are available through Amazon if they'd like to purchase it. And uh, one thing I like to 
tell people about these books. It's, it's written totally different than most other books. You see, uh, I could sit down and just write about the strange things that I could do or have done or whatever. But see, that's not the whole story. You should know who is this person that's telling you this. You should have my background, know where I came from, and know the kind of problems that I had growing up, not knowing why I had this ability. Remember when you're a kid and you're able to do things, you're ostracized by people the minute you open up your mouth. And you say, I can see this, I can see that. Kids are cruel and they'll call you names. They may beat you up. And I, I grew up in the inner city, Newark, New Jersey. And you know, you're asking for trouble. So you keep your mouth shut and you see these things and <clears throat> you just let it go. And uh, so if you're reading the book, number one, you'll find out my background. Where did I come from? What was my family like? The type of apartment that I lived in. You know, you start off by saying I lived in a three-story high uh, cold water flat. People don't even know what that is now. It, they used to rent apartments out that did not have hot water and it did not have heat. If you're going to live in this apartment, you will have to take uh, pans of water, put it on your stove, and the steam of the water after it starts to boil will actually heat up the apartment somewhat that you can go to sleep. I recall in the morning, uh, my mother had to, uh, when we before we woke up, she would take one of the pots of hot water, go to the bathroom and slowly pour it into the toilet to break the ice that was in the, uh, in the toilet. So, wow. Yeah. That's, that's my background. Yeah. So, you know, where I came from. And, uh, when you read these books that I have, uh, you'll get an idea of who I am and the things that I had to experience and later experience having the ability of retrocognition or being able to see things that other people can't. And find things. You're really good at finding things. Oh, yeah. Before you know it, everybody's called me up. One person called me up. She wanted to, uh, she lost a necklace. I said, when did you lose this? She goes, around 1970. 1970? She goes, yeah, it, it disappeared. I, I don't know where it was. And it was strange. I looked at this woman. I said, did you do gardening in the 1970s? She goes, yes. I said, you were digging around plants. And I says, I believe that it fell down into the dirt. And she goes, you think it's still there? I says, I have no idea. Who knows if people found it later, you know, in 76 or 1985. Who knows? I said, but I believe that's where you lost it. And uh, yes, I have found things for people, uh, missing checkbooks, uh, you know, missing school books, things like that. And for me, it's, you know, sometimes it's easier, sometimes it's impossible. But uh, that's yeah, one of the things, the good things about having this ability. <laughs> very good. Very good. And a good thing happened to you, Carl Petri, when you, and I'd love to know the origins of this. You've told me the story in various ways. But uh, I'm not 100% clear as to how exactly it happened, but it happened and it happened to you. You became intimates with the friends, the entourage, the troop of people I would describe as being more or less talented, a lot of times less, but a beautiful lady and people who might be described as on the margins of society. 
and they were, you might say, satellites in the very, very curious cinematic world of Ed Wood. How did you meet them? And this is also by way of letting listeners know what it was like to be around Ed Wood. You didn't know him personally, but you know him through the people who did know him personally and worked with him. Oh, yeah. I was at a show, as you've heard, I was an independent film producer, and I would produce very inexpensive films. And uh, they were rather good, but they were kind of you know, on the less expensive side. So they were, eh, they're marginal at best, but they're, they're entertaining. So I was at a show, sitting at a table, promoting the, these, uh, these movies, and it's a very attractive woman, an elderly woman. She was walking by, and I looked at her, and she had jewelry on. Her hair was done up, you know, in a bouffant type of hairdo. She was really looked good for her age. And she was walking by my table, and I said, you look like a movie star. And she turned around, and she looked at me, and she goes, well, she goes, I used to be. I says, oh. And I says, well, you look very nice. And she goes, thank you. And she goes, I'm sitting next to you. She had the table spot right next to me. So she sits next to me and she says, hello, I'm Dolores Fuller. Now, being an independent fan of these movies, whatever, they're like, the movie Ed Wood just came out and I'm sitting next to Dolores Fuller, who was the girlfriend of Ed Wood. So I says, oh, that's very nice. And her husband comes by and he says, they lost our uh, all our paperwork. We're not, we don't have a room here. This was in a hotel. She goes, oh, oh, she goes, we got to find a room. And he goes, I called every hotel around here and everything is booked. So I looked at these, the couple and I said, you know, why don't you stay with me? I says, come to my house. I says, I have a guest room. You could come with us. And she goes, you would do that for me? I said, sure. And so I immediately at warp speed turned around from my seat, picked up the phone and I said, okay, Sue, here's the story. Dolores Fuller's gonna stay at our house. She said, what? I said, Dolores Fuller, Ed Wood movie, Ed, the real Dolores Fuller. And she says, okay, well, she's used to this and being married to me. So uh, she says, okay, so after the show was over, we got in my vehicle and I brought her to my house. Now, of course, everyone in the neighborhood, the word got out, probably by me, to tell them that Dolores Fuller is to stay at my house. But before you know it, everybody wants to come to my house to see the real Dolores Fuller. So that was my introduction to the world of Ed Wood. Now, being with Dolores Fuller and seeing the movie that was just made, you know, she's telling me, well, that was wrong in the movie. This is right in the movie. So I got to meet, you know, in detail about the world of Ed Wood. Now, why I'm at this show, who else is at the show but Conrad Brooks? Conrad Brooks was a actor for Ed Wood. And he played the cop in Plan 9 from Outer Space. And, you know, he played other bit parts for Ed. And he was at the show because they were all trying to capitalize on this new movie that came out, Ed Wood, that, you know, I'm the real Conrad Brooks and she's the real Dolores Fuller. 
And so they're capitalizing on this. And here I am in the middle of it. So as she's coming to my house, whatever, Conrad Brooks says, uh, oh, you're going to have Dolores at your house? And I says, uh, yes, I am. He goes, you got room for somebody else? I says, do you want to stay at my house too? He goes, yes, I do. Now, here I am with Dolores Fuller and Conrad Brooks staying at my house, the two Ed Wood people. So you could imagine the conversations that were happening at my dining room table. And she was telling me details about Ed, how, you know, how he was and how he used to dress like a woman. And then she used to tell me about Bella Lugosi. They were good friends with Bella Lugosi. And she said, he loved my Hungarian goulash. And so, you know, I made a form and he really loved it. So the next thing I know is she goes out when, uh, you know, when I was out to work and she came back with a pan, with a pot or whatever, and she made Hungarian goulash the way Bella Lugosi liked it. So here I am, years later, eating Hungarian goulash that was given the okay by Bella Lugosi, and I'm here with these Ed Wood people. And they're telling me stories about how Ed Wood made movies, which is something I never even dreamed of. So yes, that was my introduction to Ed Wood. The real, the real behind the scenes, which is interesting because you said your own movies were made very inexpensively. And, and you told us, you know, a lot of the actors just worked for free or it was people that you knew. But Ed Wood was also known for that. Like you, he was known for making very inexpensive movies and trying to do everything either free or cheap or you know, in some cases, like borrowing and, and returning. And so interesting that there was that parallel between you and Ed Wood. Oh, that's really true. Uh, they're telling me how he used to cut corners to make movies. And she saw the parallel, just like you did, about, you know, Carl's making these inexpensive movies, just like Eddie made. Yeah. And so, you know, she's there like, oh, she's so happy because this conference that we were at was took days. And uh, every now and then she would come back into the New, New York area to attend these shows. Some shows were in New York City because I'm right next to New York City. And she would go there or, you know, somewhere in New Jersey. So now she had a place where she can go free because I was I said, you're always invited here. Now, if she went to a, a, con a conference somewhere or a convention, she would have to pay for her own hotel room. And these people were not making, they're not rich yes, people. right. So she loved it. So yeah. she came to my house quite often and mm -hmm. she was my guest and I would hear these stories. Some I can't even relay on this show, <laughs> you know, but there were uh, unbelievable stories. Yeah. And uh, then Conrad Books would tell me things, once again, things I can't really say over the air, but he would tell me stories about uh, about Ed Wood and the way he was and and how he used to cut corners and uh, and make his films. One one thing that you told us was that he didn't often get permits, which can be expensive when you're filming in in a city in in New York City or in New Jersey. And and you said he'd he'd rush the cameras in, do the scene, and then pack everything up. And if a policeman came along, well, that was the end of what they were going to film at that time. It was just one of the ways that he cut corners was not not paying the bureaucracy. 
Oh, that's true. And even to this day, if you're going to shoot anything, let's say New York City, if you have a tripod and it's, you put the tripod down on a New York City street, you need a permit. Wow. So wow. You know, then you find out there are other ways to get around it. Uh, you know, lean your camera up against the light pole and things like that. Another thing is uh, if you need electricity, if you go to in New York City uh, to any kind of a, uh, uh, a traffic light, if you look at the base of a traffic light, there's a little door. So all you got to do is just pick the lock or just, you know, pry it open a little bit and you'll see all the wiring. And all you need is a outlet with a couple of wires with alligator clips, take off the wing nuts and stick it on there. And you now have 120 watts of power and you can power lights, your camera, anything else, all for free until somebody catches you. Right. And that was the type of thing Ed Wood would do to try and cut corners. Exactly. Because, yeah. you know, we have more battery stuff that we use now. Back then it was AC. Sure. Because you're shooting in a studio, so they would have electricity. When he took this equipment out on the road, uh, he needed AC. And guess what? The town of Los Angeles provided for him, but they didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie, Ed Wood, because it's... It's a comedy, but it's also a human drama of aspiration without the talent to back it up. But the passion of the dream that Ed Wood carried never died. And he got this people, he collected people around him who had dreams of their own. They may have been on the margins of society, but they felt like somebody when they were with Ed Wood. Absolutely. And you look at people like Conrad Brooks or Paul Marco, Paul Marco was another character, and he played one of the cops. And he, uh, as a matter of fact, in a few of Edward's movies, he always played a cop, Kelton the Cop. Now, he got the name Kelton because in Los Angeles, there's a street called like Kelton Boulevard. And so back years ago, and this is something a lot of people don't realize, how actors got their names. What they would do is they would find out which street you live on, and what's your middle name? So it was a great way of getting a name. Like my middle name is Alexander. And I live on Stewart Avenue. Now, if I was an actor, I would be Alexander Stewart. Ah, very and good. Kelton, he lived on Kelton Avenue. And that was our Kelton Boulevard. And he, all of a sudden, his name was Paul Kelton. Hmm. So when you see Edward's movies, you see Kelton. And that, now you know how he got his name. Very interesting. Yeah. And he was, you know, so Kelsey used to tell me stories. Uh, once again, they were kind of risque. I can't really get into that, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, he would tell me stories about it. And he wanted to come out to the East Coast, you know, to stay at my house, too. And he would, you know, I spoke to him over the phone. And he would tell me Ed Wood's stories. And, of course, Conrad Brooks was there telling me other stuff that was, you know, kind of weird about Ed. So, yeah, I got to know all the Ed Wood people really, really well. Oh, it's a fun movie. Uh, Sarah Jessica Parker plays the Dolores Fuller, Fuller character. And Ed Wood's played by Johnny Depp. Right. I mean, how much more fun can you get than that? Put well, those two together. The story about Sarah Jessica Parker. She was on a talk show. Remember, she played Dolores Fuller right. in the movie. And so someone asked her, what did it, what did it feel like? to play 
Dolores Fuller in the movie. So here she is on this talk show and she goes, well, how do you think I feel playing the worst actress that there ever was? Mm. Who hears this? The real Dolores Fuller. Right. She went ballistic. She yeah. went nuts. She goes, she called me the worst actor there ever was. <laughs> and now I was shooting a film at the time and I'm there. Carl, take advantage of this. Now I have Dolores Fuller here and I have Conrad Brooks. Put them in your movie. Yeah. Because they're stars. No matter what, they're stars. Right. And so I put them in my movie. And <laughs> this is the strange thing about Dolores. She's a lovely person. But uh, we're shooting at a house. They gave me one hour to shoot in this house. It was like a mansion. And, you know, they said, all right, you could shoot here for one hour. I said, one hour? They go, one hour, you got to be out of here. So here I am working alone. I have my camera. I set up my camera. I'm setting up the lights. I'm doing and setting up microphones, doing all this stuff because it's only me doing this. I couldn't get any other crew people. And time is clicking by. And I'm worried to death that we're going to get this shot. So here I am doing all this work. And Dolores walks up to me and she says to me, Carl, what's my motivation for this part? <laughs> now, I'm going out of my mind. And I says, I'll tell you what, to the, what it is. I says, we got an hour to shoot this thing. And we're already a half hour into this. I says, the motivation, do it quick, do it fast. That's it. That's your motivation. So she looked at me like, that's not very helpful. You know, but that's the way it was. Yeah. You know, once again, just like Ed Wood, right. you're doing something because I got the room for free. Right. And I got all this stuff for free and I only have an hour. Right. And, and then Dolores says this, and I'm there like, maybe Sarah Jessica Parker was <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, no wonder they said you were just like Eddie. Yeah. <laughs> When you when you think about all of the uh, the many motion pictures, good or bad, or somewhere in between, made in the horror genre, they persist. And now with CGI, I mean, the technology is so much different today. And yet, what persists, Carl, is the fascination people have with horror as a genre and what it represents. What do you think is the attraction? Is it something primal that human beings fear the unknown? or fearing a lack of control, not knowing what's around the next corner that drives the fascination with horror on film or in novels. It sure works for Stephen King. That's really true. It's, if you're gonna make a film or you're gonna write a book uh, and you want to be successful and you wanna edge that bet towards, you know, to increase the chances of being successful, go with horror, you know, go with sci-fi, and also, you know, um, uh, well, going that direction, if you're going to write a book or something like that, this is where you go. Because you're right. People love horror. They love it. And uh, it's sort of like, yeah, my life is bad, but it's not as bad as this person in the book. They really have it bad. And, uh, yeah, people do. They really, really love horror. And now when I f made films, I did films which were about vampires. And personally, I don't like vampire films because you got to film at night. You got to play with the lights. It's not that too much light. It's you got to have enough light that they could see it. 
but not too much because then it looks like daylight. So when you're dealing with a vampire movie, it's really a pain in the butt. Mm. And I don't really like it, but they people, the audiences love it. Mm. So I'm going to make what they want. And this is what I did. You've had such a magnificent life in its way, but you also have faced so many challenges. What keeps you going? You, you must, if I were to hazard a guess, Carl, it would be that you have an unquenchable, uh, unquench, unquenchable, there, I got it out. You have an unquenchable curiosity about people, about life, and about experience, life as it is lived. And then you add your imagination to it, but not to the point where you would ever want to compromise your remarkable gift because you want to know what is through what was. And you do that in a way that makes you unique in my experience of any other humans that I've ever known. It's it's true. It's like when I walk into a room, I say to see the way things were before. When I look at uh, people's, I know what they're all about without them even opening up their mouth. Uh, I look at photographs and I could see things that happened in the past. I recall I went to the, uh, I used to be a regular at the Parapsychology Foundation in New York. Uh, they're a, a company that deals with real paranormal experiences. And here I was working with these people and they were amazed at the things that I could do, but they weren't like jumping up and down. They was just sort of like look at each other and say, he's got it right. He's got it right. And I know we're running out of time here, but I could tell you, you know, incident after incident where I was able to pick up on things that sort of like closed a lot of gaps. A lot of people didn't understand there's like a piece missing. And here I am, I'm talking about it and they go, now it makes sense what you just said. So for me, it's, it's great. Uh, that I could do this. I help a lot of people by doing it. And uh, uh, just to get back to my books for a moment, uh, the two books I have, if you're into this sort of thing, I would suggest, you know, get the opportunity to read it. Uh, one's called Absent Witness. And the reason why it's called Absent Witness is because I am a witness to things that I could not have seen. I wasn't there, but I'm a witness. The other one is Somewhere the Dead Are Singing. If you have the opportunity, get the books. They're great reading, and I'm sure you'll love it. Carl, thank you for being with us today. In more number ways, nine, with number nine. Go with us in person. Thank you, Carl Petri. Okay. Coming up next, one o'clock, we're coming up with American Road Trip Talk. Join us then, everyone, and have a great weekend.